Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, welcome to the Shear tonight. Uh, for those of us who are here live, we are on Zoom because Victoria is back in lockdown. But that won't change the quality for those listening to the podcast. In fact, it will sound just the same. And we will hit straight, we will start straight away with where we left off last time. We're in Bereshit Peret Kapvav. And last week we did Pasuk Chet. And Pasuk Chet was uh, quite uh, strange and raised many questions. But the fact was, Yitzchak is living in the land of Gerar, which we identify with the land of the Philistim. Interestingly enough, basically the Gaza Strip. And it, it, he's there because there's a famine and Hashem told him not to leave Eretz Israel. So he's still in part of Eretz Israel. We'll talk about that a little bit later tonight. And he says that his wife is his sister, just like Abraham did on two occasions. And we saw in Pasuk Chet that after he'd been there for a while, he was engaging in behavior with Rivka, which made it obvious that Rivka was actually his wife. So it takes us on now to Pasuk Tet of Perek Kavvav. And we read, Vayikra Avimelech Yitzchak. Avimelech called Yitzchak Vayoma, and he said, Ach, hinei ishtachahi. But behold, she is your wife. Ve'ech amarta achotihi. And how did you say she is my sister? Vayome erav Yitzchak. And Yitzchak said to him, Ki amarti pen emot ba'aleha. I said, lest they, uh, I, I die for her, lest they put me to death. Okay, there is no Rashi on that, so we'll go straight on to Pasuk Yud. So in Pasuk Yud, Avimelech responds, Vayoma Avimelech, Mazot Asitalanu, what is this that you've done for us? Kimat Shachav Achad Ha'am, almost one of the people Shachav slept with, Esh Ishtacha, your wife, Vehevita Aleno Asham, and would have brought on us, or will bring on us, an Asham guilt. So Rashi says something interesting on Echad Ha'am, one of the people. So it sounds, before we get to Rashi, as Abimelech is saying, just one random Philistine could have been the one who would have taken your wife. But Rashi says, Achad Ha'am is Hamyuchad Ba'am, the unique one amongst the people, Zeh This is the king. So in other words, Rashi says, Achad Ha'am does not mean a random one of the people. It means quite the opposite. It means somebody very, very unique. So you can't say very unique, because unique only can ever be either unique or not unique, but it means someone who is unique, someone who is distinguished, i.e. the king. So why does Rashi say this? So there's two points I think I want to make. The first is that if we look in Bereshit Mem Tet Pasuk Tet Zion, Mem Tet Tet Zion, in the brachat that Yaakov gives to his sons, in Tetzayin, he said about Shevet, Dan, Dan Yadin Amo, Dan will judge his people, Ke'echad Shiftei Yisrael, like one of the tribes of Israel. And Rashi um, gives two explanations of Ke'echad Shiftei Yisrael. And the second one is Ke'echad Shiftei Yisrael, Ke'miyuchad Shevashavatim, like the unique one amongst the tribes, who David Shababa Yehuda. This refers to David, who comes from Yehuda, which was the most senior tribe. The point I want to make is Rashi seems to be saying Echad can be understood as Amiyuchad, not just meaning one, but meaning the unique one. 
So it seems to me that from that uh, example that we can say that Rashi understands when it says Echadam, it might mean Hamiyuchad Shabaam, because that's uh, the meaning of the word Echad. Now, why should it mean that? So let's go back and look at what Avimelech said. He said, um, one of one person, before we get to Rashi, might have taken your wife and brought on us asham, brought on us a, a guilt. So there's two points to say. Number one, how can Avimelech know that that might have happened unless Avimelech referring to himself? And number two, perhaps a stronger case, is which person could it be who could commit a transgression and bring guilt on the entire people? That would be Avimelech himself, the king. If the king acts in that way, then you can say the Heveta Aleno Asham, he will bring on us guilt. So perhaps that's why Rashi says that Echad Ta'am here means Hamiyuchad Shaba'am, i.e., the king, because the king has the power to bring upon the entire people a guilt based on the king's own behavior. And then Rashi says on the words of the Heveta Aleno Asham, says Rashi, Im Shachav. What's Rashi doing? Rashi is giving us the time frame for when the Haveta Aleno Asham could refer. Because if you look at the simple meaning of the text, it looks like it hasn't happened yet, but it could happen in the future. And the Haveta, well, it's arguable whether the Vav is a conjunction or the Vava Hippoch to make the Haveta into a future. But if it is a future, it certainly doesn't make sense because it can't be now that Avimelech is saying, now I know that she's your sister, something might happen in the future. Uh, somebody might take her in the future and that will bring upon us a guilt in the future. So Rashi says, no. First of all, he does two things in this little comment of Rashi. The second one is he takes off the Vav from the Heveta. So he replaces the Heveta Aleno Asham by the words Heveta Aleno Asham. So instead of making it arguably future, it is now definitely past. And, and in the previous clause that Rashi adds in, if somebody has already taken your wife, then already they wouldn't have brought upon us guilt. In other words, it doesn't make sense to say it's going to happen in the future. It only makes sense to say it could have happened in the past. That can only be Avimelech's message. And therefore, Rashi makes it clear that he's talking about something that could have happened already in the past, and that would in the past have brought upon us Asham. Okay, that is Pasuk Yud. Pasuk Yud Aleph has no Rashi, but we will read it nevertheless. Avimelech commanded all the people saying, somebody who literally touches this man and his wife will surely die. So Avimelech is saying, unlike Paro, more like Avimelech in the Abraham incident, you can stay here, it's absolutely safe, and I will instruct people not to touch you. So what happens next? Pasuk Yudbet. Yitzchak sowed in that land, and he found in that year, Mea Sha'alim. A hundred, well, let's leave it to Rashi to explain Sha'arim. Hashem, and Hashem blessed him. So, by the way, we often understand, we often imagine the Avot as shepherds. Abraham certainly had flocks, and Yitzhak, as we will see soon, had flocks, and Yaakov was a shepherd for sure. 
Um, but Yitzchak doesn't actually do much shepherding, but he does do planting. Um, maybe we can bring a whole drush about this, and I will mention one thing in a moment, which will come out of the Rashi comment on this passage. But Yitzchak's avoda that we notice him actually doing is planting. He's agricultural rather than pastoral, although he did have blocks, as we will see. So the passage says he planted in that land and in that year, and he found Mea Sha'arim. So let, let's, uh, Rashi's going to say the Mea Sha'arim means 100 amounts, shi'ur, like as in Shi'ur. 100 amounts compared to what he would have expected. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, Rashi's got a comment on the Eretz Hahi and in the Shana Hahi. So on the Eretz Hahi, Rashi says, Even though it is not considered like Eretz Israel itself, like the land of the seven nations, and then even though it's not in its normal arrangement, because it was a year of famine, and then put the two together, why do we need to be told these two things? But the land is hard and the year is hard. And nevertheless, he had an amazing produce. So why does Rashi have to say this at all? I think that's obvious because the Pasuk says Yitzchak planted in that land. Well, where else is he going to plant? Obviously, he's going to plant in the place where he is and he's in Gerar. So we don't need to be told he planted in that land. Even more so, we don't need to be told he did it in that year because what other year is he going to be doing it in? Obviously, he's doing it here and now. So why does the Torah have to say he did it there and then? So says Rashi, there's a significance in doing it there and then, even though there was not a good place to plant and then it was not a good place, a good, good, good time to plant, nevertheless, he did and he got lots of produce. Now, Rashi has to be very sort of careful here. Um, we know that Hashem appeared to Yitzchak and said, don't go down to Egypt, which Rashi in Pasuk uh, Bet, Al-Tered Mitzrayma, Shokhen Ba'eretz, stay in the land, Asher Omar Alecha, which I will say to you. And Rashi understood that in the logical way as don't go to Chutzla Eretz. So we must understand that he's in Eretz Israel. So how can it be that Rashi says in that, place um, in that, sorry, in that land, which was not so good, you would expect it not to be so fruitful, and yet it was. So Russia has to invent a sort of mid-category. There's a place which is not Chutzla Aretz, but it's not Chashuva Ke'eretz Yisrael Atzma Ke'eretz Shiva Goyim. It's not like Eretz Israel itself, the land of the seven nations. Now, just to complicate things and then remove the complication, Abraham was originally promised 10 nations. We, we talked about this last week, the land of 10 nations. And then that was sort of restricted to seven nations. And the other three nations got given, Rashi says in Devarim, to Edom and to Ammon and to Moab. And in the future, they will come back to Abraham or to Abraham's descendants, i.e. us. Not quite clear where those lands are. Anyway, um, you might want to suggest that the difference between the seven lands which this land is not part of is because it's one of the three extra lands. Well, it isn't, because nowhere do we have any suggestion that one of those three extra lands goes to the Polishtim. 
So this land is very much and, and permanently throughout history, part of Eretz Israel, but still bet. It's class two. Uh, or as Rashi put it, it's not like the land of Israel itself, like the land of the seven nations. So again, it is Eretz Israel because Yitzchak is in it and Yitzchak cannot leave Eretz Israel. But it is Eretz Hahi, it's in that land, which is not as good as Eretz Israel. So it's a bit of Eretz Israel, which is not part of the Shiva Hagoyim, um, not part of the seven nations. Um, ironically, well, not ironically, interesting enough, we are talking about the land of the Gishtim, which is more or less the Gaza Strip, although it went a bit further north, it included Ashkelon, because we know from, uh, from Nach that Ashkelon was part of the land of the Gishtim. But it does seem interesting that throughout history, that region, that little bottom corner of Eretz Israel has been part of Eretz Israel and yet not quite part of Eretz Israel, and certainly has not been part of the 10 nations promised to Abraham. And Russia has also to be a bit careful with the next comment about even though it's not a normal year, because it was a land of famine, but we know that Yitzchak moved to Gerar to escape the famine. And when he's in Gerar, it turns out it's not so famine-y. Famine and we also saw um, last week that Yitzchak is having relations with his wife, which is forbidden to do in the time of a famine. We learned that from Yosef, who has his children before the famine comes when he's in Egypt, and Rashi makes that point there. So we do know from, from various sources that it wasn't a famine where Yitzchak was. But Rashi says, nevertheless, it's not such a good year. So it's an area of Eretz Israel, which is not quite Eretz Israel, which is adjacent to where the famine is, but where it's not so um, plagued with famine. So both these comments both uh, have to be understood in a similar fashion. It's not, it, it is Eretz Israel, but not quite. And it is a famine, but not quite. But either way, it's enough to say that from both those factors, the not quiteness should have meant less produce rather than more. And what happened? He got Meir Sha'arim. So let's look at Rashi on that. Sha'amaduha kama ru'uya la'asot. They estimated it, how much it's fitting to produce. Asta alachat sha'amaduha, sorry, meya. And it made a hundred times as much as they estimated. So that's meya sha'arim. Sha'ar doesn't mean gate, but it means like shi'ur, like a mount, like what is the shi'ur for? Uh, the cup of wine for Pesach. Uh, so it's a hundred times the amount. Amount of what? So Rashi has to say, amount of what was estimated. And then Rashi says, This estimation was for the sake of taking ma'aseh, taking tithes, taking 10% of the produce and giving it to a lady. Now, um, why does Rashi have to say this? Perhaps because we need to know why was it being counted at all? I mean, there's no real need. You're not selling on your produce. You know, if you're not, you know, we don't need the, the account books of how much profit Yitzchak Inc. made every year. So why do we need to know the amount? Um, it's also the case that the Gemara in Chagiga says, Ein habracha shuruya badavar hamadud. The bracha does not rest on something that is counted. So uh, it's a little bit like Ayin uh, Hara. I, I think it's perhaps more well-based than that. But we don't go around counting things. And if we don't count, if we do count things, we're less likely to get a bracha. So how come Yitzhak 
counts how much produce he makes? And the answer is, there will be a need for that if he's fulfilling the mitzvah of Maaseh, because in order to give 10% of your crop to a levy, you have to know how much the crop is, which implies that Yitzchak kept the mitzvah of Maaseh. To whom did he give it? Who was the levy? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe Shem was thinking, because we see he's a Kohen, um, and a Kohen includes a levy. Oh, that's just a thought. I don't know. But um, so we have this. Uh, maybe it's not so strange to say that Yitzchak kept the mitzvah because we see that Abraham kept all the mitzvah. Rashi explained that in Pasuk uh, Hey. Um, and so if Abraham kept the mitzvah, it's likely that Yitzchak kept the mitzvah. Or maybe, as we talked about last time, Abraham kept all the mitzvah and Yitzchak and Yaakov kept some of the mitzvah. But either way, it's not so strange that Yitzchak should keep the mitzvah of Maaseh. But maybe it is significant that this mitzvah is said in particular relation to Yitzchak. And I would suggest two things why what might make that significant. Number one, we might remember that when Esau was pretending to be a tzaddik and Esau was trying to show his father how from he was, um, and Rashi said that in, sorry, I don't have it here, but it was the beginning of uh, the parasha of Vinyan Koldot, that when Esau uh, uh, had Sayyid Vapiv, he had trapping in his mouth, which Rashi translate, explained as he tricked Yaakov with, he tricked Yitzchak with his mouth, with his words. And he says, how do you take Misa from Melach and from Teben, um, from straw and from salt? So it's interesting that the mitzvah that Rashi says Esau tried to show off about how pious he was is the mitzvah of Maser, the same mitzvah that Rashi says yeah, that we have here a, a evidence that, Yaak, sorry, that Yitzchak was actually involved with. And then it occurs to me the following, and this is just my idea, so please take it for what it's worth, that perhaps the story of Yitzchak is about living in the mundane physical world and elevating it. Um, I haven't quite worked this out fully, and I haven't necessarily got a parallel for Abraham and Yaakov yet. But it seems to me that Yitzchak is the one who works basadeh in the field. And yet he is the one, Yitzchak is the one who goes to meditate in the field. And Chazal say that he was davening Mincha, and Yitzchak is the one who gives us Mincha. And Mincha fits with the image of Yitzchak that I'm portraying, that what is Mincha? Mincha is when you take, you stop what you're doing in your busy, mundane, business-related world. You take however long it takes to daven Mincha out of your day, and then you return to your world after you've daven Mincha. Mincha is associated with Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the one who's in the field. Yitzchak is the one who is sowing busily and he's about to be digging wells. He's very involved in the physical world, but what Yitzchak does is sanctify the physical world. Yitzchak's personality is to find extreme levels of Kedusha. Yitzchak is the one who becomes an Ola Tamima, a pure burnt offering. Yitzchak is the one who by his very nature cannot leave Eretz Yisrael because he's on such a level of Kedusha, but he puts that Kedusha into the world around him. He doesn't live like a hermit. He doesn't stay on Hahamaria. He comes down and he runs a farm and he sows seeds and he digs wells. He is involved in the physical world, but he brings his Kedusha to it. Which mitzvah perhaps most beautifully expresses that idea? It is the mitzvah of Masa. Because you have all this produce, 
and you take some of the produce, which is just the same as all the rest, and then you sanctify it, you make it masa. You declare that this produce is different from that produce. It's got a different level of sanctity just because you have said it so. And once you have said that this 10% of the crop is now masa, it must be treated differently from the rest, which is cholen. It must be treated in a particular way. If it's masa sheni, it must be eaten in Yerushalayim. If it's masa rishon, it must be given to a, to a levy. Um, just your act of declaring it to be masa elevates it in Kedusha. And I would suggest, uh, as I say again, this is just my idea, so take it for what it's worth, but that's the story of Yitzchak. And maybe that's why we find here, and I think we find in a few other places as well, the association of the mitzvah of Masa with Yitzchak Avinu. And the next comment is on Pasuk Yud Gimel. Uh, and Yud Gimel says, the Yigdal Ha'ish, the man was, grew great, and he became more and more great until he was very great. Um, if you're wondering why it describes Yitzchak as Ha'ish, the man, I don't know. Rashi doesn't have anything to say on that. But Rashi does have something to say on this, all this greatness. And so Yitzchak is becoming great and he continues becoming great until he's very great. So what does very great mean? How can great, how can you get to very great more than great? It sounds like, uh, and the next Pasuk is also going to suggest the same, that he's got lots of stuff. He's very, very wealthy. From all this produce, a hundred times what was estimated, he's doing very well financially. Uh, in that term that I really don't like, people would say he's successful. Uh, I don't like it because success is much, much more than just making money. Perhaps it's even something quite different from making money in the way we usually use that term. Anyway, you would assume that the gadlut, the greatness of Yitzchak, is something to do with his wealth. And that perhaps would be brought out, as I say, in the next Pasuk. But Rashi's not satisfied with that. And Rashi says the idea of being great and carrying on being great and then being very great takes you into a different realm of greatness. And what does Rashi say? On the words, ki gadal ma'od, shahayu omrim. People, I'm adding the word people, would say, zevel pirudotav shal yitzchak, the dung of the asses of yitzchak, velo kaspo uzahavo shal avimelech, and not the uh, silver and gold of avimelech. In other words, I'm paraphrasing, the people would say, it's better to have the dung of Yitzchak's mules than to have the gold and silver of Abimelech. So before we analyze the phrase, what Rashi understands by Gadol and then Gadol Ma'od is people's perception. There's greatness, and then there's very greatness, and very great is when people say how great you are. So it sounds to me like greatness is a material and an objective reality. You're rich. But very great on top of that is everyone knows that you're rich and everyone talks about you as being rich. And says Rashi, that's what happened. Now, what did people say? They said something which is the lowest of the lowest of Yitzchak is better than the highest and the highest of Abimelech. And Abimelech is the king after all. He's got lots of gold and silver, but people are saying the dung of the mules of Yitzchak is better. Now, either that means it's more blessed, it's somehow more special, or they're saying it's greater in quantity, that Yitzchak has so much stuff 
that he has so many mules and they produce so much dung that there's so much of it. So it's either quality or quantity, or maybe even both. Now, there is an interesting um, question asked on this Rashi, which is based on uh, Rashi's own comment in Perak Lamad Vav, Pasuk Kaf Dalad. Perak Lamad Vav, Pasuk Kaf Dalad. And here, the Torah goes through the descendants of uh, Esau's family, um, and then the kings of Seir. It's all rather strange why we have the whole Perak Lamad Vav. When we get there, we'll talk about it. Um, and in Pasuk Kaf Dalad, when we're going through the various descendants of um, Asav, we get to, is it Asav or is it, uh, no, sorry, we, we finished Asav. Uh, I pause, yeah, no, these are the, these are the Renee Seir. These are the people who lived in Seir before Asav came along. But when, when Rashi goes through the descendants of Asav and the descendants of Seir, um, and I, this is relevant for what we're about to see, he finds lots and lots of incestuous relationships, people having relations with their mother in order to produce more children. They're all a bunch of, uh, they're, they're a pretty bad lot. Uh, and this idea of improper relations seems to run through their pedigree. And then you get to somebody called Anna. Um, and it says, who Anna, uh, in the middle of Pasuk Kavdalad, Asher Matzah et Hayeimim. Anna was the one who found Yemim Bamidbar in the desert. And so as Rashi, what is Hayemim? Pradim, mules. Balama Yishikra, okay, and then he says, um, yes, sorry, when he says Yemim, no, I don't have that on my translation. Sorry, um, I'm looking at the wrong text. Uh, anyway, what I was looking for is Rashi says that Anna was the one who actually made mules by crossing a horse and a donkey. Uh, I'm just trying to see where I've got that. No, I haven't got that in my text, but I, it is in where I was looking for before. I won't take your time by looking at it. But anyway, it says there that Anna, Perak Lamadva, Pasuk Kaftalad, Anna was the one who crossed a horse and a donkey and made mules. So what's the question? The question is that happens in Perak Lamadva, which is long after Perak Kafvav. So how come in Perak Kafvav, uh, Rashi says that Yitzchak is already the possessor of many, many mules? The result of a cross between a horse and a donkey it's a chronological question so i saw two answers one is don't worry about chronology the torah is not in chronological order and particularly you can easily say that with perak lamadvav which is a sort of retrospective of the genealogy of people who've been around associated with asaf so it you don't have to say that this description of this person called anna and his crossing a horse with a donkey to make a mule happened after Yitzchak, it could have happened before. Or you could say that mules always existed, but it was Anna who actually mastered the art of crossbreeding in order to make more of them. So maybe it's not the hardest question, but it is of some interest and some of the Mephoshim asked that question. Okay, we move on to Basak Yudalat and continuing about the wealth of Yitzchak. He lo miknei son, 
he had flocks of uh, sheep, umikne bakar, and herds of cattle. The avuda rabba, we'll leave Rashi to explain that. And the Egyptians, sorry, the Pelishtim were jealous of him. Rashi has just one thing to say on the word avuda. And this is one of those Rashis, which I'm always nervous about saying is straightforward. He's explaining the rare grammatical form of the word. And Rashi says avuda rabba means paula rabba, much um, activity. Beloshon las ouvriant. And in French, in classical French, it's ouvriant, which means activity. And then he says, avoda, with a cholam, mashma avoda achat, that implies one piece of activity. Avoda, mashma pu'ula rabba. Avoda implies a big activity. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean avoda is singular and avoda is plural. That's not what Rashi says. But Rashi is saying avoda is small, and avuda is big. So in order to understand what the word means um, uh, in this grammatical form, which is rare, I didn't check how often it occurs, if it occurs anywhere else, but avuda, says Rashi, means pu'ula, means activity, and avuda rabba means pu'ula rabba, means a big activity, either a big activity or lots of activities, but Rashi is not necessarily saying that. But we do know the Pasuk ends with the Polishtim were jealous of him. Now bear that in mind when we go to the next Pasuk, Tet Vav. And all the wells which the servants of his father, i.e. Abraham, had dug, in the days of Abraham, his father, Sitmum Polishtim. The Polishtim had closed up, or Afar, and they had filled them with earth. And then we're going to go on to say that Yitzchak dug them again, but we're not saying that quite yet. We're introducing the story of the digging of the wells, which is going to occupy us really till the end of the Perak, with this fact that the wells which Avram had, Avram's servants had done in dug, sorry, in the days of Abraham, had now been filled up by the Pelishtim. Now, in order to introduce Rashi's comment, you might wonder why the Polishtim had filled them up. And if you had thought of a logical reason, you might be wrong, because Rashi says as follows. Um, on the words, Sitmum Polishtim, Mipnei Amru, because they said, so the Polishtim said, Takala Heim Lanru, they are a snare for us, they're a problem for us. Mipnei Hagaya Sot, because of the armies, that come over us. In other words, because they had these wells, which provided water to people, including passing armies, the armies would divert and go for those wells in order to, feed, to, to quench their thirst. And that's a problem because nobody likes armies trampling over one's area. So they're better off without the wells. They're better off filling the wells up with earth to avoid the armies coming into their region in order to access the wells. So says Rashi, well, he quotes, he quotes Onkelos in the next two words, Tamunum Pelishtai, Lashon Stima. So Onkelos translates uh, Sutmum as Timunum, which um, sometimes means cover. On, uh, I was going to say on Shabbat, actually on Friday, one can't do Hatmana, Tof Mem Nun, one can't cover things if that's going to make them cook faster 
you can't even do that on Friday if they're going to cook faster on Shabbat. So hatmana means to cover up. But Rashi says that when Uncle says tamunim, it means loshen stima. It's a loshen, it's an expression of closing up, not just covering up, but actually closing up. Ubaloshen hatalmud matamtem etalev. And we have a similar word in the Gemara with the word matamtem. So the sharish of that is tetmem tetmem, um, which is a doubled sharish. It's a four letter word, a four letter sharish with the tetmem doubled. And the tetmem, I think he's saying, is similar to our satum, which is uh, tough mem. Now I look at it, it's not actually so similar. But Rashi says the word in the Gemara, matamtem etalev, which is to close up the heart is similar to our sitmum, which means to close up. It doesn't just mean to cover, it means to close up. Now, let's see, let's go back to this comment of Rashi. Um, I think it might have been a natural way to think that Pasuk Tet Vav follows on from Pasuk, the end of Pasuk Yudalat. And you might have said the Pelishtim were jealous of Yitzchak. And you know what they did? Because they were jealous, they closed up all the wells. They stopped up all the wells. Says Rashi, that's not what's happening. And perhaps there are three reasons why. One is the, you can't say that your dollar just leads straight on to Tetvav because it doesn't. Because Vayaknu Oto Pelishtim, full stop. The Pelishtim were jealous of him. And there we go on to Tetvav, and the very fact that it's a separate Pasuk with a full stop separating them implies there's something else going on in Tetvav. In or to put it another way, if it had said, if it had meant the Pelishtim were jealous and that's why they stopped up the wells, it should have said they were jealous and they stopped up the wells or something like that. Maybe even they were jealous and therefore they stopped up the wells, but at least they were jealous and they stopped up the wells. But that's not what we have here. We have, they were jealous, full stop. And all those wells, which are from a dog, they stopped up. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is, if you're jealous of um, Yitzchak, it's in your interest to steal the wells, to take the wells for yourself. And we're going to see later on, there was argument about who owned wells. So if it was that you didn't want Yitzhak to have the wells, then it would make sense to say, we, the Polishtim, we take the wells away from you. You can't have the water. It's all for us. It makes no sense to stop up wells. You're dealing in a desert environment there was no uh, plumbing of hot and cold water like we have today. Wells were absolutely precious. They were incredibly precious. The last thing you want to do is stop up a well, even if you don't want the owner of the well to have it. So take it for yourself. So Rashi looks at the pastor. First of all, the, the being jealous of Yitzchak is not connected to stopping up the wells. Number two, why would you stop up wells rather than just keep them running? And so Rashi comes up with the answer, but the wells themselves were a problem for the Polishtim. How can wells be a problem? Because invading armies come backwards and forwards trying to get the water, and that's what they wanted to stop by stopping the, up the wells. Hence Rashi's comment, which is not what I suggest most of us, myself included, would have expected. Okay, let's move on. Um, now we come to Tet Zion. Avimelech said to Yitzchak, go from us, because you are very much greater than us. Interestingly, Yitzchak, who was welcomed into Gerah and uh, in Pasuk uh, Yud Aleph, 
Abimelech said nobody can touch him. He guaranteed his safety. Now it's got to the stage where Yitzchak is so um, wealthy that Abimelech says it's time to go. We're jealous of you. You've got to go. Now, by the way, uh, the way Rashi read Tetvav is it's sort of uh, intercalated, as it were, between Yud Dalad and Tetvav, sorry, Tetzayan. Yud Dalad says um, Yitzchak had lots of stuff and the Pelishtim were jealous of him. Tetzayan, Abimelech says, you've got to go from us. And Tetvav, especially the way Rashi explained it, is really nothing to do with that story. It's about something that happened before. And it's, uh, it's put there in order to explain what's going to happen soon. So let's go on to Yud Zion. Uh, there's nothing on Tet Zion. On Yud Zion, um, Yitzchak responds to Abimelech's request, which is to go. Yitzchak went from there. And he camped in Nachal Gerar, the Yeshev Sham, and he dwelt there. Rashi says on the words, the Nachal Gerar, Rachok min ha'ir, far from the city. And why does Rashi say this? Why, how does Rashi know this? And why does Rashi feel the need to say this? And I think the best answer is, Nachal Gerar sounds like Gerar. It sounds like a part of Gerar. Uh, it sounds very much like it's a part of Gera. But in Tet Zion, Abimelech said, go, go from us. So you would have thought, but if Abimelech, who's the king of Gera, says, go from us, then Yitzchak must go out of Gerar. And yet he doesn't. He goes to a place called Nachal Gera. Is he failing to fulfill the command of Abimelech, who told him to get out? Ah, that's where Rashi comes in. Rashi says that it, don't think it's, uh, that Yitzchak has failed to fulfill Abimelech's instruction because it's rachok min ha'ir, it's far from the city. So yes, it's still part of Gerar. And by the way, Yitzchak probably still has to be in Gerar because there's still a famine as far as we know in Eretz Israel. So he is still in Gerar and it's still called a part of Gerar, but it's far from the city, which also explains how there could be a conflict as there's going to be about wells that he digs in Nachal Gerar. If he dug wells in the city, then it's obvious that the Pelishtim could claim that they belong to the Pelishtim because it's Pelishti land. It's, it's, it's where they've been living since time immemorial or however it might be put by the propagandist of those days. But if it's uh, far from the city, even still in Nachal Gerar, then we can understand why there's going to be an argument who owns the land, who owns the well, and there's going to be a dispute about it which there wouldn't have been in, if it had been in the city itself, then it would certainly have been belonging to the Pelishtim. So Yitzchak goes to Nachal Gerar, which Rashi says is far from the city. So presumably it's still in the same vicinity, but it's, he has fulfilled the instruction. He has gone out of the city. And then in Yud Chet, Vayashav Yitzchak, Yitzchak dwelt, Vayachpor et Be'erot Hamayim, and he dug the wells of water, Asher Chafru Bimei Abraham, which were dug, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, Aviv, his father. Vai sat mum pelishtim, and the pelishtim had closed them up. Acharei mot Abraham, after the death of Abraham. Vayikralahem, and he called them Shemot by the names, sorry, he called them the names, Ka Shemot Asher Karalahem Aviv like the names which his father had called them. So he, we already were told in 
um, Tet Vav, that the Pelishtim had stopped up the wells which Abraham had dug, and Yitzchak undoes that. Yitzchak redigs them and calls them by the same names. I said last week that uh, I said last week that Yitzchak does so much which seems to just be a copy of his father. He does very little which is neither as a son who's being offered up as a sacrifice or as a father who's being manipulated by his own children. And even the little bits, which is Yitzchak in his own right, seems to be quite much a copy of what Abraham does. And here is a very clear example. He absolutely does the same thing as Abraham with the same wells and the same names. By the way, this perhaps uh, highlights what's going to happen in the next few Pesukim, which is the only place where he really does something of his own, which is not a copy of Abraham, but we'll come to that soon. Now, Rashi says something which perhaps, again, changes our understanding a little bit of what's going on here. Rashi says on the words, basically repeating the words of the Pasuk. He lived and he dug the wells which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and the Pelishtim had um, uh, filled up, which is uh, almost the same as the first half of the Pasuk. And then Rashi says, Before Yitzchak left Gerar, he returned and dug them. Returned as in he, he re-dug. Doesn't mean he went back to Gerar. So says Rashi, Pasuk Yud Chet comes before Pasuk Yud Zayin. Yudzayin is when he leaves and goes to Nachal Gerar. And Rashi makes the point that Yudchet was Kodem Shunasai Yitzchak Megerar before Yitzchak left. In fact, we can be more precise and say it was before Tetzayin, because Tetzayin and Yudzayin go together. In Tetzayin, Avimelech says go. In Yudzayin, Yitzchak goes. Says Rashi, Yudchet was before that conversation, which means it was at the same time as Tetvav. So in other words, Tetvav says the wells which Abraham had dug had been uh, filled in by the Pelishtim. And Yudchet says Yitzchak went and dug them all and called them by the name of their uh, of Ab the, the names that Abraham had used. And then Tetzain and Yudzain, Yitzchak goes away. And then the story continues in Yudtet. <coughs> it's worth noting that that implies, uh, well, I was about to say, if we assume that Yitzchak knew he was on his way out, but before he goes out, he stops to dig the wells, it's interesting that he's digging those wells of Abraham not for his own benefit, not to get water for himself and his own household and his own flocks. He's digging the wells and he knows he's then going to leave. So why is he digging the wells? And the answer must be because there's something very important and perhaps on some sort of spiritual level, which we can't fully understand about those wells and about the names. But when Abraham was digging wells, Abraham being Abraham was operating on this world and the world to come at the same time. And when he digs wells and he gives them names, there's something very, very significant. It's interesting that when we're coming in a minute to Yitzchak digging his own wells, his own story of digging, and he calls, he does it three times, and he uh, calls each of the wells by a particular name. The Ramban says, but those three wells, not the ones he's dug yet, but the ones he's about to dig, are symbolic, are, are, are an archetype 
of the three Bati Migdash, the first, the second, and the third. The first one was destroyed, the second one was destroyed, the third one will not be. Just like the first time Avra Yitzchak digs his wells, the Pelishtim object, the second time the Pelishtim object, and the third time they don't. <coughs> so the point I'm making is the Ramban says that in this digging of wells, there are deep, deep, profound ideas. And it's not too hard to then extrapolate from that to the wells that Abraham dug. And uh, the same thing can be said of those wells and the names that Abraham called them. And perhaps that's why Yitzchak is so keen to redig the wells that Abraham dug, even not for the sake of drinking from them, but just so that they should be dug. So that's, according to Rashi, what's going on in Yudchet. Yitzchak redig the, dug the wells of Abraham before he left Gerar. And then he goes and settles in Gerar, and then we go to Pasuk Yudtet. How are we doing for time? Yeah, we're doing nicely. V'yachperu avde Yitzchak v'nachal v'yimtza'u sham be'er mayim chayim. So the servants of Yitzchak dug in the uh, valley, and they found there a well of living water. No comment of Rashi. Let's go on. V'yorivu ro'ei gerar im ro'ei Yitzchak. And the shepherds of Gerar disputed, argued with the shepherds of Yitzchak, Leimora, saying, Lanu hamayim, the water belongs to us. And they call, he called the name of the well Asek, which means sort of argument or strife, because they argued with him. Now, so, okay, um, this is the first of the three wells. And it's the first place, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's the first digging that Yitzchak does. And by the way, as I said a moment ago, this is not a copy of anything that Abraham did. So perhaps we should really mine it for significance because this is Yitzchak, qua Yitzchak, almost uniquely. But what we do get, even if we can't understand exactly what's going on here, we get the names of the wells. And the name of the first one is Asek Kihit Asku Imo. And Rashi says on that, Kihit Asku Imo, Nitasku imo aleha, they argued with him about it, the mariva, the irur, with argument and contesting. Irur is a comma, is a word often used in the Gemara when people contest ownership of something or other, usually of land. The word irur is to make a uh, make an objection, basically. Now, what Rashi has done is added the word aleha because the word aleha really needs to be there. Because what he, the Pasuk seems to be saying is the shepherds of Gerar argued with the shepherds of Yitzchak saying, Lanu hamayim, the water belongs to us. And so what we would expect is kihidasku because they argued aleha about it. They argued about the well. That is the critical thing. But yet the Pasuk says itasku imo, they argued with him. So Rashi saves the day by adding in the word aleha after the word imo. Nitasku imo aleha. Yes, they argued with him, but the issue is what they were arguing about. That's why it's called Asik. That's what the argument is, because they were arguing about it, about the well. I just realized, having made an effort to explain why Rashi brings the word aleha, I'm uh, sort of duty bound to explain why the word Rashi brings the word the Mariva, the Irur, and I don't know. So that will be for us, uh, for all of us to have as own work. Why Rashi adds the word the Mariva, the Irur, maybe to explain the word Asik. 
ASEC, by the way, generally means sort of oppression, defraudulent, um, improper business conduct. So maybe Rashi needs to explain a little bit more that in this case, it means Mariva argument, the Irur and contested property. Now what happens next? Nun, sorry, Kaf Aleph. They dug another well and they argued also on it. Now, by the way, that seems to support what I was trying to say about the previous verse. In this verse, they say they argued Aleha on it. And, uh, and so Rashi has to say that in the previous verse, they were also arguing Aleha, even though the Pasuk didn't say so. I just noticed, which I didn't notice before, that in Kaf Aleph, what's going on is the Yerivu. Uh, oh, sorry, that was at the beginning of Kaf as well. Okay, so no, nothing significant there. So they argued Gamaleha on it, Shema Sitna, and he called it the, the name of it Sitna. And Sitna, says Rashi, Rashi translates Sitna into French, and it says Nusmont, uh, and my French is not very good, but it's something to do with the English word nuisance, which I think is a little bit too sort of light for what we're talking about here. Uh, maybe in old French, nuisance was a bit more, bit more pejorative than we hear today. So what does sitna mean? I could refer you to Ezra, Perut, Dalad, Pasuk, Vav, where sitna is, a, a, is an argument. Um, I didn't actually see anyone say this, but it seems to me that sitna is related to the word satan, which is the accuser, the one who tries to separate us from Kaddish Baruch uh, and, and us by making us go in the wrong direction. So I suggest there's some connection there. But sitna is, again, some degree of negativity, some degree of something uh, not good, something that is being argued about. So the second of the three wells is also the subject of an argument, and it's called sitna. Now, I know it's only 21 minutes past nine, but I think I'm going to call it uh, an evening there. Um, I realize that talking on Zoom Talking nonstop is uh, hard work. So I'm going to, with your permission, I'm going to take my break now and I'll say thank you very much. If anyone has got any comments on anything we've said in the last 50 minutes, because it's been very quiet from all of you, you're very welcome to say so now. Otherwise, we will conclude the share tonight and we will meet again. Hopefully, in Yitz Hashem, some of us will be in person, but the Zoom will always be available for everyone else as well. So thank you very much. We'll meet again and we'll carry on learning same time next week. Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you.